Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome along to this episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and this week we welcomed Dr. Ashley Nisbet, consultant cardiologist, to the show where we discussed the topic of collapses and we discussed the key features to focus on when you're taking history from these patients. I do have a slight disclaimer to mention in this episode, which is that just before we recorded our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant, there was a slight microphone glitch. It switched to recording from my laptop rather than my podcasting mic, so I just thought I'd give you a little heads up about that in case you're wondering why it sounded slightly different. Anyway, I know lots of you must be working so hard towards your exams, so here at the show, we really do wish you all the best for your preparation, your revision, and your exam itself when that time finally arrives. Please do subscribe to the show on whatever podcasting app you use to make sure you don't miss an episode. And without further ado, on with the show. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast, the only podcast that prepares you as well for paces as a loaded dose of amiodarone prepares you for a lifetime of defective thyroid function. Today's episode, we're covering a topic that is certain to get your heart racing, and it's a favorite in both Station 5 and the history-taking station, and that is a patient presenting with a collapse. Joining us is truly the queen bee of syncope, it's Dr. Ashley Nisbet, consultant cardiologist and electrophysiologist at the Bristol Heart Institute. She is also an honorary senior lecturer at the University of Bristol and is also the cardiology training program director in the Seven Deanery. Not only that, but she also regularly examines on paces, so we are extremely grateful that she's managed to carve out some time in her busy schedule to appear on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us, Ashley. No problem. And I know for a fact this has come up in multiple different forms in PACES in the past. So why is this such uh, a favourite for the examiners to include in PACES? Syncope is a very common presentation and I think that it's an important thing to examine because it really demonstrates your ability to take a good, clear history. So much of what you get in terms of diagnostic indicators in a patient with syncope comes from the history that you take 
and that is essentially why it appears in paces quite often. And not only that, but Quiz the Consultant is returning. That's right. Mm-hmm. Our consultants take on a quickfire quiz on a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the caveat being that it can't be related to medicine. So, Ashley, what have you named as your specialist subject and why? Well, I am an 80s child and therefore I've chosen 80s pop. And can I say, it was an absolute joy to do the research <laughs> for this uh, quiz. So, that's going to be coming up a little bit later in the episode, but. We're starting off with a deep dive into collapses. So, if we start off, I think it would be fair to say that this would probably be most likely to come up in either the Station 5, so the brief clinical consultations, or in the longer form history-taking station, so Station 2. And in the Station 2, you've obviously got more time, so you're going to be expected to be more comprehensive in that history and a station five it's going to be much more focused with also including relevant aspects of examination so we're going to be covering both aspects of that and obviously the comprehensive history is going to include a lot more detail so you're going to be taking elements of that history into a shorter focused history for your station five so it's all going to be relevant if we first start thinking about someone who presents with a syncopal episode Ashley, what are the typical features of a patient who suffers a syncopal episode? So what you want to find out from the patient is what exactly they mean by a faint or a blackout or a funny turn. And the history, while it comes from the patient, also should potentially come from uh, witnesses. The key features in the patient presenting with syncope rather than seizures, which is a, obviously an important differential, would be that the, the transient loss of consciousness happens very suddenly. So they have a rapid onset of, of symptoms, usually of quite short duration, um, but also importantly, they often have a very rapid recovery afterwards. They may or may not be amnesic after the episode, and it is essentially a syndrome of transient global cerebral hypoperfusion, so a sudden abrupt drop in blood pressure which reduces the circulation to, to the brain. It's very important to be alert to other potential causes of transient loss of consciousness that are not syncope per se. And so what we have to do is recognise those red flags so that we know who we need to investigate further as an inpatient, investigate urgently or who are safe to discharge uh, without any further investigation. And really the, the key to this is a very detailed history. Um, so when you're taking a history from a patient, then you want to make sure that you do so in a structured way, something that you'd be very familiar with from all medical training, um, and finding out about what's happened uh, not only during the episode of syncope, which they may or may not be able to tell you, but how they felt before and then what happened after. So there we have it. The structure in any sort of loss of consciousness type station should be a history of before the episode, during the episode and after the episode. And I guess something which is less relevant in paces particularly, but in is very relevant in our own clinical practices, patients who have a transient loss of consciousness from something which is potentially an acute, acutely unwell illness. So something like severe sepsis, acute coronary syndrome, 
um, hypovolemia or hemorrhage or something like an aortic dissection or a PE. Now, that clearly isn't going to be um, as realistic in patients because those patients are still going to be, in real life, they're going mm. to be very sick. Mm. But those are still things to consider mm-hmm. in paces. But it's, it's somewhat contrived to think that a patient would be sat in front of you, stable, talking about having mm. an aortic dissection. But those are just things to consider. Mm. So... Although I will say, um, just as a just as an aside, and, and this is something that we quite often see when patients come in with um, syncope. I honestly don't think I've ever seen an acute coronary syndrome present with syncope. So um, I think that that is something that you know, unless there's a very clear history of an arrhythmia associated with it, I think very rarely is a collapse um, due to a non-ST elevation MI or an acute coronary syndrome. Mm. So that's just a sort of less of a point for paces, more of a point for actual practical clinical uh, medicine when you're seeing patients coming in through the ED. Um, I think it's very unusual. Okay, thank you for that. And how can we categorise um, syncope when it isn't related to those acute presentations? Mm. So the key thing with syncope is to understand whether the mechanism is neurally mediated, so neuro, uh, neurocardiogenic syncope, um, which otherwise is known as simple vasovagal syncope or fainting, or whether it is due to orthostatic hypotension, which again has a similar um, mechanism to the neurocardiogenic syncope, but predominantly the issue is um, a drop in blood pressure rather than necessarily any bradycardia or cardioinhibitory effect. And the key thing is to exclude an underlying structural cardiac problem causing the syncope. So structural heart disease such as severe aortic stenosis or some sort of uh, sinister malignant arrhythmia, whether that be a tachyarrhythmia or a bradyarrhythmia. And so when you start off taking the history or when the candidates start off taking a history, they're going to start with before the episode. And what are the sorts of questions which you would expect a candidate to ask about when they're first taking the history about what's happened just before the episode? Hmm. So I think the key thing is actually asking the patient what they were doing at the time that they started to feel unwell. So what you'll often hear from patients is that they blacked out with no warning. And then you say, well, how did you feel immediately before you blacked out? Well, I started feeling a bit dizzy or I felt a bit funny or my vision went funny. And you say, well, what were you doing? Well, I wasn't doing anything. Well, actually, what were you doing? Well, in fact, there's often a trigger. There's often some activity or some precipitant. So either they were in a supermarket and they felt very hot or they were stood at a bus stop or they had been out for a run and suddenly stopped running, something like that. So there's usually something about the activity immediately preceding the syncope that can give you a clue as to the mechanism. Things like warm, stuffy environments, being in a train carriage, being outside on a hot day, having recently eaten a meal. Other things that are not necessarily associated with um, vasovagal syncope, but perhaps other mechanisms such as um, carotid sinus hypersensitivity or in fact you know non-cardiac causes such as vertebral basilar insufficiency in the elderly and um, things like turning the head looking up you know I was I was changing a light bulb sort of thing and um, putting on a tie those things might indicate a different mechanism but um, are also very important to, to tease out in the history. 
And, and you mentioned there about the, the prodrome, the, the <clears throat> symptoms which the patient experiences just before they lose consciousness, mm-hmm. as well as the activity whereby something exertional might make you think more towards a cardiac cause or maybe a structural heart condition. But do those often have associated symptoms with a cardiac cause? Mm. So um, the key thing about vasovagal syncope, which is the more benign variant, is that you often have a precipitant, so that's the first P, and a prodrome, as you mentioned. So that means that they they get a feeling that something's wrong before they do collapse. Um, That often is a feeling of either dizziness or lightheadedness. Um, They may come over a bit clammy and sweaty. Um, Patients will often describe sudden sort of loss or tunnelling of vision or their vision might go a bit yellow um, before they do then pass out. Often they know that they're going to go, so they will look for somewhere where they can sit or lie down. Um, With cardiac syncope caused by structural heart disease or arrhythmia, those prodromal features are often not present. And so the lack of a prodrome is actually more of a red flag than if there is a a, a clear precipitant and particularly a postural element to it um, and also those prodromes. Um, but with, with cardiac syncope due to structural heart disease or arrhythmia, then quite often those things are lacking. Mm. And then there's a whole other sort of a different kettle of fish really in neurological collapse related to seizure activity. And sometimes patients can sense that they're going to have a seizure. But again, this isn't really your or my area of expertise in particular. And I'm sure we'll find a kind neurologist to come on and, and talk to us about it. But sometimes in seizures, they do have an aura that they do feel like mm. something's going to happen often describing things like funny smells or flashing lights before Mm. they go on to collapse. But obviously Mm. then the events during are notably different Mm. and in fact the duration of recovery afterwards. Mm. But we'll come on to that in a a, a moment. Mm. And then I guess one other thing which is pertinent in taking a history would be the presence of any previous episodes and are they prone to having these Mm. types of events? And... One of the things would be is if they have had previous episodes, is this episode that they've presented with the same as anything they've had prior or are they two distinct events? Mm, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So um, there's often a pattern of, of being... Um, you know, inclined to have syncopal events under certain circumstances in in their lifetime. If it's vasovagal syncope, then often there are um, factors in the history that point to that, such as, oh, well, I fainted when I was having blood taken, or um, I passed out once when I was a teenager and I was having my period, or, you know, these kind of things that do um, give you a suspicion that there is a a slight tendency to have um, vasovagal syncope. And so those those things are important to to glean from the history as well. Yeah. So you're going to be asking about any previous episodes, any situational factors and any prodrome that they had. So then moving on to what you would think about asking about during the episode. Now, this would be quite difficult because in paces often there's likely to just be one person in the room with you. Probably unlikely that they're going to have someone there to give a collateral mm. history. So... How would you advise the candidates to ask about anything that happened during the episode? I think well, quite often you don't have a, a relative with you at the time you see the patient in the clinic. So actually this is just as relevant to real life practice as it is to paces. But I think it's always interesting to hear from the patient 
what other people have said about the episode because quite often these are witnessed and they can tell you what people have said that they looked like before, during, after the event. The presence of pallor, clamminess, sweating, and also the absence or presence of jerking movements. Now, jerking movements are actually very common in patients who have vasovagal syncope. That can then be interpreted as being a seizure. But the difference between the jerking movements in syncope versus a seizure are that they are fairly random sort of jerks of the upper and lower limbs that happen with low frequency and are very short-lived. And the patients are usually more flaccid rather than, you know, more rigid when they collapse. And the jerking is not rhythmic as it is in a in a tonic-clonic seizure. So the key things that differentiate syncope versus seizure, really, when jerking movements are concerned, as in seizure, you often have an initial rigidity and stiffness followed by rhythmic jerking of one or other, you know, limbs. Where in syncope, they're usually flaccid; they usually kind of melt to the floor rather than fall abruptly and, you know, rigidly to the floor and the jerky movements are a bit more random and also sort of lower frequency. Yeah, I think there's a there's a really interesting YouTube video actually of a load of German yeah, the medical German students. Medical students. I saw that when I was a medical student. Yeah. <laughs> They're still showing that. Yeah. yeah, the German medical students is uh, that goes down in history. I saw that. I was shown that when we were learning about syncope as a medical student in Aberdeen in the 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you haven't seen it, essentially, I think what they asked them to do, they asked them to sort of bear down on the ground and then hyperventilate, ask them to stand up and induced a vasovagal episode. And yeah. they've got a number of clips of students standing up falling over, having a vasovagal episode, and it demonstrates just how similar the layperson or any person in the street seeing these jerking movements might even consider them to be a seizure. So it's very easily done. And if you haven't seen that um, YouTube clip, I definitely recommend just YouTube uh, German medical student fainting or something. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that we'd get very good feedback from the students at the medical school if we got them to do that <laughs> nowadays. Yeah, definitely not safe for 2021. No. Ashley, what do you think about the presence or absence of incontinence in yeah. a patient who's collapsed? Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of people think that that's a marker for seizure versus syncope. But actually, if you lose consciousness and uh, your bladder's full, I'm afraid you will be incontinent, whether it's a seizure or a syncope. So I don't think that really helps to differentiate one from the other. Yeah. That I definitely agree with that and I think we've all probably seen patients who've been admitted who are most concerned about that because that's the thing which they hear about on uh, maybe people they know on the news and television that if you p- pass out and you are incontinent you know it might be a mark of epilepsy but mm-hmm. as you've rightly said not not necessarily specific mm-hmm. for epilepsy. One thing that is a bit more specific on that matter is the tongue biting issue. Um, so seizures um, that occur with Um, tongue or syncopes or loss of consciousness I should say that occurs with tongue biting particularly if the tongue biting is at the side and the back of the tongue um, rather than at the tip of the tongue which could happen if anyone fell over those are more indicative of a seizure because that represents a sort of bit of um, clonus of the jaw and so you bite down on the tongue at the back of the mouth because it falls to the back and that is more likely to be a marker of it being a seizure rather than a syncope. Mm. And then moving on to after the events actually occurred, another thing which is a significant marker of seizure activity rather than a syncopal episode or transient loss of consciousness would be the recovery time. Because as we said at the start, 
a sync per episode is characterised by rapid recovery, but that's not the case in a in a seizure, is it? No. So a seizure, um, you will be very sleepy for for a period of often hours afterwards. Um, in a syncopal episode such as vasovagal syncope or indeed um, cardiac syncope caused by structural problems or, or arrhythmia, the recovery is often very abrupt. Um, you usually feel fine when you wake up. Sometimes after a vasovagal episode you might vomit when you wake up and um, you know feel a bit unwell, um, a bit headachey, but generally you will be able to get up and get on with your day. Whereas um, after a a seizure um, there's often a period of, of real sleepiness for, for, for hours afterwards. So let's say we've nearly come to the end of our history but we're quite happy that the patient doesn't have any markers of seizure activity and it doesn't sound particularly vasovagal, there wasn't any prodrome and it sounds cardiac in nature as in, you know, there's no warning, they've lost consciousness with a rapid recovery. What would you say are sort of the red flags which should be asked about in a patient who's lost consciousness? Mm. So um, red flags in this situation, I think the presence of a, of a transient loss of consciousness that occurs without warning, without any clear precipitant and no prodrome is a red flag in itself. Um, the, the history of the event, so particularly if it has occurred um, on exertion, so I don't mean after exertion, because quite often someone may have vasovagal syncope after exertion, but if during sport or during exertion you have an episode of sudden loss of consciousness, then that in itself is also a, a red flag. Um, in the you know previous history, so anyone who we know has a previous history of of structural heart disease, of a congenital cardiac abnormality, or indeed uh, patients with a family history of sudden death or some sort of arrhythmia um, syndrome, then those in themselves are, are red flags. Um, but yeah, the sudden onset with no prodrome and no precipitant. Um, and without going too far into the investigation, if you um, ex or examination, if you examine the patient and you find that they've got signs of structural heart disease, such as a murmur, or if they have an abnormal ECG to start with, again, those in themselves are, are indicators that you need to be considering admitting them for further investigation. Perfect. So all of those obviously applicable um, in our clinical practice as well as in as well as in paces. And you've mentioned a couple of things there. When if you have more time, for example, in the history taking, you've got more time to go into mm. the structure of a full past medical history and, and a full family history, which where you can take a long history. But even even more important, just to demonstrate that you've got an awareness of that, even in the shorter um, station five. Other things to potentially ask about thinking less about cardiac syncope and more like vasovagal or orthostatic hypertension would be hypertension itself mm. and treatment for that because yeah. patients can quite often be over treated yeah definitely so um if, if you've got time to take a full history what you want to be establishing are things like the drug history um so what medication is the patient on has anything recently been changed particularly um the other things to note are what their comorbidities are what other past medical history do they have um 
things like Parkinson's disease can uh, cause quite a lot of postural instability and autonomic dysfunction, which in itself can cause orthostatic hypotension and syncope in that setting. Um, and I've already mentioned the, the presence of known structural heart disease. So someone who's had an echo, you know, five years ago showing a degree of aortic stenosis but hasn't been followed up, and they now come in with syncope, then you need to be wondering whether that is in fact um, the, the reason. Um, the other key things in the history are, are they suddenly breathless? Have they had any hemoptysis? Because pulmonary embolism is another very important cause um, of syncope that's life-threatening that has to be considered. Um, I've mentioned briefly taking a family history. So if there is a family history of structural heart disease or an arrhythmia syndrome such as um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy or Brugada syndrome, these are these are worrying features in someone presenting suddenly with syncope. Um, and also you need to know a bit about what the, the patient does in their normal daily life. Um, their social history is important, particularly when it comes down to what their job is. If, for example, they're, they're roofers um, or if people need to drive for their work, um, because that may be relevant to their, um, their livelihood going forward. And you have a duty to make sure that you inform them um, of the appropriate DVLA guidelines with regard to syncope um, when you see a patient with that history. And just going back to the family history, one of the things which I know has sort of come up before is they may not necessarily know the diagnosis, but they'll say, oh, my first cousin ha had a collapse and now has a device in. Yeah. So something like it's not vague. There's no there's yeah. no overt diagnosis there. But it's still important to ask about other events similar to this in the family, because obviously with things like congenital syndromes, there's a, a degree of heritability there. Yeah. And coming on to driving, we're going to talk a little bit about that later, but I would say it's almost a whole other episode in itself that we would yeah. need to dedicate to that. So we, yeah, may well, we may well end up doing that. So after you've taken a full and complete, thorough, fluent and systematic history, at least in the Station 5, you're going to be coming on to a very focused examination. And you've got such a small amount of time, a minute, maybe a minute and a half to demonstrate that you know the pertinent parts of examination in a patient with a, a transient loss of consciousness. So Ashley, what would you suggest that the candidates start with in this very short period of time that they have to examine these patients? So in station five particularly, you'll be asked to take a history and do a relevant clinical examination based on the history that you've heard. And so if you have a patient with a transient loss of consciousness, depending on what they've told you, you'll either be examining the neurological system or the cardiovascular system. Um, if it sounds like it's a cardiac history, then you want to be examining for cardiovascular disease, briefly looking at the hands, looking for cyanosis, feeling the pulse, checking for any murmurs when you listen to the precordium and predominantly looking for signs of aortic stenosis or for example hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If it sounds more like the history consistent with a seizure, then I guess that you'd be looking at a neurological examination. And where that is concerned, um, checking for, for example, signs of movement disorder as well, such as Parkinson's disease, might be relevant if, if there's, for example, orthostatic symptoms predominantly. But I think that you often find that there's nothing abnormal at all in examination of patients with 
syncope and you may be shown an ECG which is also something that could come into that station and so I think you just have to think about what you might ask for and you might well be expected to say I would like to see the patient's ECG. And one of the things in a station five particularly related to the examination is they often use actors for this station. So although obviously PACES is about examining patients with clinical signs and detecting them, station five is one of the ones where they may not give a patient with signs. So it's obvious that you have to demonstrate that you know which signs to detect. But more often than not, in my experience anyway, they didn't have any signs and it's just demonstrating that you know which systems you need to examine. Especially in a, an orthostatic type history or a vasovagal type history where they would have a completely normal examination. So we've talked a little bit about the history and examination. So let's move on to when you come to your presentation of the case and talking about the investigations and management of these patients. Yeah. So the presentation is going to vary widely depending on the exact clinical history which has been elicited. But um, using the elements of each type of history we've discussed, hopefully you'll have collected enough information to give a diagnosis which is divided into one of the categories which we've spoken about so far. So Ashley, what investigations would you suggest that the candidates start off in their presentation to the examiners? So if we ask you what you're going to do to investigate this patient with syncope, then you are going to uh, tell us that you're going to want to check some routine observations. So particularly, you're going to check their pulse, you're going to check their blood pressure, and, and particularly important is to check both lying and standing blood pressure to see if there's evidence of postural hypotension. Um, you're going to ask for a finger prick glucose test to see if um, hypoglycemia could have been the mechanism. You would also um, clearly want to do a 12 lead ECG and on that ECG you're looking for particular signs um, that could indicate underlying structural heart disease such as left ventricular hypertrophy or an axis shift that could indicate aortic stenosis or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy but you're also looking for signs of um, rhythm disturbance such as bradycardia the presence or absence of, of ventricular ectopy that could indicate underlying uh, tendency to go into VT, for example. Um, you want to look at the QT interval on the ECG, um, look for evidence of any degrees of heart block um, or any features that could indicate a sort of inherited um, ion channelopathy, such as the features of Brugada syndrome. But those are rare and um, I think it would be unusual to to come across that sort of thing in paces but um, nonetheless um, those are things to be looking for and then moving on from sort of the bedside investigations you'd normally have a full set of routine blood tests and obviously in your presentation you're going to be justifying the reasons why you've requested each of these bloods so a haemoglobin to check for uh, anemia and a full blood count looking at the white cell counts and crp for signs of infection or inflammation my old favourite was renal function, liver function, because these might be affected by any medications we might choose to start. But um, there are others which are specific to um, a patient with a transient loss of consciousness. So um, alluding to um, things like arrhythmias, it would be important to check um, electrolytes, particularly magnesium and calcium. 
and thyroid function as these can all predispose to um, tachyarrhythmias or indeed bradyarrhythmias which would explain the patient's loss of consciousness. Now, Ashley, do you, would you do or would you say you would do a troponin in a patient presenting with a loss of consciousness? I would say that unless there was a clear history of chest pain preceding the episode, um, I do not think it's necessary to check a troponin in a patient who presents with syncope. Um, it may well be positive because you will have had a period of transient hypoperfusion, which will also be endocardial as well as it will be um, you know, cerebral. And so therefore you may see an elevation in troponin. You may then incorrectly label that patient as having had an infarct. Um, so I don't think it adds much to your diagnosis unless there is a clear history of chest pain that sounds like myocardial ischemia in the preceding um, history. So no, I don't think it's necessary to check a troponin. Fair enough. And when we come to imaging our patient, um, I mean, everyone gets a chest x-ray when they come into hospital, but that's not a good enough reason to a uh, PACES examiner. So um, I always just said, oh, to check for infection because that, that's a potential cause, even if there aren't particularly any infective symptoms. Mm-hmm it's still possible to have a, an occult pneumonia, which is the reason why someone's collapsed. Mm. And then thinking about structural heart disease, an echocardiogram would probably be yeah. the investigation of choice. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, you sometimes get a clue from a chest x-ray that there's something abnormal going on with the heart. Um, rarely you might see a widening of the mediastinum, which in itself might indicate an aortic dissection, but you probably would have other features in the history that were indicative of that rather than it all hanging on the chest x-ray. You might see in somebody with an underlying cardiomyopathy who could potentially have had an arrhythmia, you might notice cardiomegaly on the chest x-ray. So yeah, there are lots of reasons why a chest x-ray might be helpful, but it's probably not the primary investigation. I think probably the ECG is and looking for structural heart disease and certainly an echocardiogram but most people can't get that in the emergency department or in the acute receiving units when you see the patient so um, you know you have to have a an index of clinical suspicion and um, be good at using your stethoscope to detect murmurs yeah because also I think you, you can get pulled up in paces for over investigating as well so it should only really be done if you genuinely think that there is a suspicion of doing that because the the risk then is that you admit someone for an examination or an investigation which actually they don't require and that's you know a waste of a waste of nhs resources so yeah definitely um i think on that subject i think that um when it comes to monitoring for arrhythmias in patients with syncope also um i think you have to be careful of your modality that you choose to do that um, what you're looking for with ambulatory ECG monitoring is symptom rhythm correlation and in somebody who has one syncopal episode a year your likelihood of positive yield from a 24-hour ECG is really quite minimal um, and so if you do have a high index of suspicion that this is not um, newly mediated or vasovagal syncope and you think it could be an arrhythmia then you should consider more extended ambulatory monitoring but um, probably an implantable loop recorder is a better means of actually obtaining that symptom rhythm correlation should an event happen again in future Um, and then that can be diagnostic and then you can make your management decision based on that. Mm -hmm. So that's covered the cardiac rhythm related collapse which you might be presented with. In terms of the newly mediated or the orthostatic, the the management is largely based around educating the patient and allowing them to take measures to try and prevent 
this happening again. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you make a diagnosis of vasovagal or neurally mediated syncope, particularly in young patients with otherwise structurally normal hearts and normal ECGs, um, the key to the management of this is patient education. Um, because although there are drug options that can reduce the frequency of events, the vast majority of benefit comes from the avoidance of the precipitants and the triggers for the event, um, and also um, recognising that the symptoms are, due, are are going to come on, um, and getting in a situation where you can sit or lie down to prevent injury predominantly. Vasovagal syncope can be really life um, affecting for people, they, especially if it happens very frequently. It can be really quite debilitating and quite anxiety provoking for patients. Um, so it is really useful for them to have some way of, of, of sort of taking control of it and managing things themselves. The key pieces of advice that we give to patients are to ensure that they are drinking enough fluid. So that means at least two litres of water a day, but probably more than that in order to maintain good hydration. Um, also to um, have a high sodium diet. So not just adding a bit of salt to your food, but this is actually, you know, using a high sodium diet. So, you know, salty snacks, the whole shebang, they can have everything because <laughs> in fact, what that does is it, it helps to keep your blood volume within your blood vessels rather than pulling in the soft tissues in the ankles. And, you know, those things can really make a difference to some patients. Um, other things that actually have been shown to help are um, strategies um, called bolus water drinking. It may not be something that anyone's heard of recently, but this is something that um, has been shown to be quite effective. So there are some patients in whom they feel worse first thing in the morning because they've lay in bed all night, their you know, their blood vessels are relaxed, they then stand up and then get in a hot shower and so they vasodilate even more, they get more venous pooling in the ankles and then they feel dreadful for, for the rest of the day. Um, or people who have particularly bad orthostatic symptoms. Um, having a huge you know a, a large glass of cold water before standing up before getting out of bed might actually help to reduce those symptoms and um the mechanism by which this works is not entirely clear it could be related to a bit of vasoconstriction in the splanchnik vessels in the abdomen which then maintains circulation to the brain so um those things can can be quite helpful um if it's very severe um wearing compression garments can help um, now you know flight socks up to your up to your knees work to some extent but actually the things that really work are the ones that you wear that go right up to your waist and, and most young women who have vasovagal syncope do not want to wear those things because they're ugly <laughs> um, but those are those are definitely um, the sorts of strategies that we can use to help patients to manage their symptoms but the key is really recognising those cir circumstances where it's likely to happen and just trying to avoid them don't let yourself get too hot don't stand up in you know carriages of hot stuffy trains if you feel that you're getting dizzy or you're going to faint try and sit down or lie down um, because then you might not injure yourself if you do pass out briefly perfect so that takes us pretty much to the end of the aspect on management and all i'd say is one of the main things that will come in terms of examiner questions or one of the most important aspects of, of managing these patients is driving restrictions mm. now with this particular presentation it is it is very tricky because there are mm. there are a, a great diversity in 
the guidelines themselves. And actually, a, a, a sort of a sort of semi cop out would just be, I would I would look at the DVLA websites on the on the driving restrictions, and I would make my decision on that. Yeah. I don't think it would be. Um, unreasonable to do that and I think as long as the examiners appreciated that mm. I think that would be okay especially if it's somewhat of a equivocal history where maybe yeah. the diagnosis isn't clear. Yeah absolutely I think that's right and actually the DVLA guidelines do change from time to time and I think that's the appropriate answer to that question um, I think that it's better as even in clinic you know when I'm not sure I will check it and I will check it in front of the patient so that they can see that I'm not just making it up mm. because it's quite important that they see it's there in black and white and it's not me that's putting these um, restrictions on them it's actually there um, by the DVLA and those are the those are the restrictions as as they are published, um, because obviously it has a huge um, potential um, financial burden on patients who if they lose their livelihood because they can't drive, um, and with that comes sometimes some really interesting discussions with patients about um, well what actually did happen on the day because sometimes they do change. Um, their interpretation of events when they learn that um, different interpretations will have different restrictions of, of their driving um, licence. So it can be quite a, a, a minefield actually and medical legally it's always best to err on the side of caution with these sorts of things. Yeah. Perfect. So I think that pretty much completes our deep dive into seeing a patient who's presented with a collapse in paces. And I actually feel like I'm going to pass out myself. So before that happens, let's move on to our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant. Well, we all know that consultants are experts in their fields, but what else occupies the brilliant minds of our consultants, which isn't medicine? I'm laying down the gauntlet to each consultant who comes on the show to give me a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the one caveat being that it can't be related to medicine. So Ashley, what have you chosen as your specialist subject and why? So I have chosen uh, 80s pop music because I am a child of the 80s and I am quite proud of my record at pub quizzes of recognising pretty much every song that comes on if it came from that era. Um, although if it's not a music recognition quiz and you're going to ask me questions about artists, I might not do quite so well, but I'll give it a try. Okay, well, unfortunately, the budget of the Pre-Paces podcast <laughs> is limited and I can't afford to pay off every music producer in Hollywood. So it is mainly on songs, lyrics and other things related to 80s music. What's your area of specialism even within 80s pop? Do you have a specific band that you're a particular fan of or were you a musician yourself? Uh, so uh, I wouldn't consider myself to be a musician although I did um, I did sing which is a bit of a secret and now I've just told you on that. Um, I was in lots of, of different choirs and groups and, and was a, a huge um, fan of musical theatre and was uh, in the University of Gilbert and Sullivan Society as a student. So yeah, I'm a closet uh, amdram enthusiast. But when it comes to 80s pop, um, I I just, you know, I just loved everything. I've got very eclectic taste in music. Um, I was a huge fan of Michael Jackson. I was a huge fan of Wham. Um, but I also liked a bit of, you know, the sort of soft rock stuff as well. <laughs> 
Perfect. Well, you may well find out that some of your special interests come up in this quiz. So before we go ahead, this is how we play. There are 10 questions in total. If you answer immediately without taking the multiple choice options, you get two points. But if you're not sure, you can take the multiple choice options and that gets you one point. So 20 points to, to play for and you can ask for the multiple choice options if you're not sure. And I have to say, I had a real blast researching for this quiz. It was fantastic. <laughs> Sam, you probably weren't born when half these songs were out. It, absolutely, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 90s. I, I don't, but hey, I can still appreciate some good 80s pop. So, 10 quick fire questions on 1980s music. Are you ready? I'm ready. In the song, Don't Stop Believing by Journey, the city boy and the small town girl catch the midnight train, but where was it going? Anywhere. Anywhere is correct for two points. Who, in 1986, said that we could call him Al? Uh, Paul Simon. Another two points in the bag. Question number three. What is the name of the Whitney Houston song featuring the lyrics, There's a boy I know, he's the one I dream of? Oh, God. Um, you might have to give me the multiple choice option. Okay, we can do the multiple choice option. So is it A, I will always love you? Is it B, how will I know? Is it C, I want to dance with somebody? Or is it D, the greatest love of all? Yes, how will I know? That is correct for one point. Question number four. Which Phil Collins song was parodied in a Cadbury's advert in 2007 by depicting a gorilla performing in, <laughs> on the track? In the air tonight is correct. Two points. <laughs> okay, question number five. In the chorus of the song Never Too Much by Luther Vandross, he names two things which he says are never too much. Name either one. I think I need the multiple choice on that one. Okay, that's okay. So is it A, a thousand kisses from you, B, a million months in your heart, C, a hundred nights spent with you, or D, a thousand hugs on the stairs? <laughs> a thousand kisses from you. Is. That is correct. Which song by Frankie Goes to Hollywood was covered by Gabrielle Aplin in 2012 and reached number one in the UK after featuring in the Christmas John Lewis advert in the same year? The Power of Love. That is correct. For two points. Question number seven. Michael Jackson's 1983 single Beat It is one of the best-selling singles of all time, but which iconic lead guitarist recorded the guitar solo for the track? Um... Oh, was it Slash? It wasn't Slash, I'm afraid. And I can't give you the multiple choice options either. It was Eddie Van Halen oh, from Van yeah. Halen. Yeah. Question number eight. Which Norwegian band sang Take On Me in 1984? Aha. Aha, indeed, is correct for two points. Question number nine. Which Leonard Cohen song has been covered by Jeff Buckley, John Cale, Rufus Wainwright and Alexandra Burke. Uh, hallelujah. And that's correct for another two points. Last question, question number 10. Which 80s pop princess sang Girls Just Wanna Have Fun? Cindy Lauper. And that is Cindy Lauper, and that is a respectable 16 points. <laughs> <laughs> that is certainly a respectable score on Quiz the Consultant. And have I ever told you my, my joke about the locksmith who wrote a song? No. 
Well, just as well, because it's got a brilliant key change at the end. <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of this episode on collapses and 80s pop music. And that only leads us to pay huge thanks to Dr. Ashley Nisbet for joining us to cover this critically important Paces topic. Oh, thank you, Sam, for having me. I enjoyed doing it. If you have enjoyed this episode and you like the podcast, please do like, comment and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can get in touch via all the social media channels on Twitter and Instagram. It's at prepacespodcast. And if you want to get in touch on email, it's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. So thank you so much for listening. I'm going to go and rehydrate myself. And we hope to see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcasts.